Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning. Our sin expiated, covered by the blood of the sacrifice of your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. We come knowing that your wrath has been propitiated. Lord, those are not light terms. They're heavy, hard to understand. But they bring great joy. Because your wrath was kindled against all mankind who live in ungodliness. We were that man. We lived in ungodliness. We lived in pride. We lived in rebellion. We denied your existence by our very action and word. Oh God, you had all of the right to wipe us from the face of the earth and require eternal damnation for our sin. But you, oh God, have demonstrated your love towards us in that while we were and still are sinners, Your precious Son, Christ, died for us. That He might be for us the righteousness that You required. And that He might be for us the sin that You would punish. Oh God, help us to contemplate these great thoughts. Help us not to run past their deep, abiding truth. Help us never to take them for granted. But let us leap for joy in our hearts that today we stand clothed in your alien righteousness, forgiven, accepted, a child, forevermore secure in your name. Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. God justified the ungodly. Eric just read a passage for you that is the very heart of the Christian teaching of salvation. Justification by faith alone. That drips from every clause, every sentence of this whole paragraph. God justified. Do you notice the past tense in my title? God does not justify. God has justified the ungodly. Past tense. Finished. Complete. Justification, unlike what many in our day believe and teach, is first of all an objective fact. God justified the ungodly. It's not primarily a subjective matter that is applied directly to us. We have individualized the faith so much that we have forgotten the objectiveness of the faith, which is God, before the time began, chose us in Christ, justified us by His blood, has called us to eternal salvation, and blessed forevermore. And all of that was, the period at the end of the statement was put There before time began. He didn't 
He doesn't now justify us as we choose to come to Him. We are justified and we are ungodly. That's not past tense. That statement is today in our actions. Objectively, we are righteous. Subjectively, as it applies to our lives, if I follow you around, you follow me around, we are ungodly. Still. There are great errors taught from our pulpits in this day. Two great errors in this line. One is that God justifies you when you choose Him. That is wrong. Objectively, truthfully, all of the elect are justified in Christ before time begins. And it is finished when Christ dies and is resurrected from the dead. It's done. Subjectively, we're teaching the wrong thing because what we say is, when you ask God to forgive your sins, He makes you righteous. Inherently righteous. That is the great error of the Roman Catholic Church in this regard. That we somehow, at the moment of conversion, become righteous. In ourselves, righteous. That happens at the sprinkling of a child in the Catholic Church. It's happening in the Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian and non-denominational and charismatic churches all over our land today. At the moment someone walks the aisle, we are teaching them they now are righteous. I want to tell you, God saved the elect before time began. He saved the ungodly, and we are still ungodly. But we are clothed in a righteousness that is not our own. This is the beauty of this supper that we will take today. This is what we picture in the Lord's Supper. That Jesus is all and in all. That God is in all and for all time justified the vindication of god's righteousness is the primary work done at the cross it's the first thing that is done the whole old testament far from being an account of god's wrath is a picture of god's mercy our world has it all backwards our thoughts are even wrong we think of an old testament god that punishes mankind and acts out his wrath and destroys nations and calls for genocide and oh this wrathful god the picture of The Bible and the teaching of the Apostle Paul is that God passed over sin in the Old Testament era. God passed it by. Do you see that? The reality is that because of our great sin, the flood should have occurred every day. In the Old Testament and in the New. Right now, If we remove Christ from the equation, God would only be just if He absolutely condemned us immediately. He could not justify us, the ungodly. God's righteousness is what God was after on the cross. Because we'll never understand this fact. We will never understand the God-centeredness of the Bible until we are God-centered. 
We're so man-centered in our thoughts. We're so me-centered, family-centered that we forget the greatest picture of the Scripture is that God is out for God. God and His glory stand alone. This is what Calvin preached relentlessly in his theocentric messages from Genesis through Revelation. He proclaimed the truth that God is all about God. So what does that mean to us? Well, first of all, we have to see ourselves as this text shows us. First of all, we are in sin. We are sinners. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the definition of sin. The greatest overarching definition of sin is that it is an exchange of the glory of God for the glory of something else. Whatever that else is, whether it be you, your family, your wealth, your job, ease, leisure, retirement, whatever it is, sports, food, that's the definition of sin. The exchanging of the greatness, the glory, the magnificence of the Almighty for the worthlessness of something else. That's what sin is. What is righteousness? Righteousness is just the opposite. Righteousness is naming and claiming the worth of His glory. That's what righteousness is. Seeing God for who He is. Treasuring Him above all things. That's righteousness. And so God requires righteousness. This is the great struggle Luther had as he looked at Romans 1, verse 17. For in the righteousness of God, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther says, I hated that phrase, righteousness of God, because all I saw was that God was righteous and I was a sinner and He required me to be what I could not be. And so there was punishment due me. Luther struggled with this text until he realized the great truth I'm proclaiming to you today from God's Word, and that is this. For in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, that little phrase, from faith for faith. That's the phrase that changed Luther's life. It was at that moment when he understood what that meant that he was converted, I believe, that he was saved. For the first time, he turned and said, Oh God, I'm a sinner and you are righteous. What is is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. For in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the only hope we have is faith in Christ. That's what the phrase means. The righteousness of God in the Scripture. It's not about our just acts. It's about one objective truth, Jesus Christ. That's it. He is the righteousness of God. So we accept that by faith. From faith, for faith, the righteous shall live by faith. That was the only requirement of God, faith. And so it wasn't our works. It wasn't a righteousness that had to be earned. Therefore, God required a payment for these sins, the falling short of the glory of God. When God passed over sin, what He seemed to be saying to the world was that He was unrighteous. Why? Because He seemed to be saying, my worth, my value, my glory is really meaningless. You have trampled me under your feet 
for thousands of years and I have not responded. The pagan world was laughing at those who followed Christ because what they said and the, Jew, and the true Israel, what they said was, if your God is so concerned about His glory and if He is this righteous judge you talk about, why then do our forefathers sin, worship idols, sacrifice their children, and yet He does nothing to them? They live happy lives. If God is who He says He is, why is Ishmael blessed? If God is who He says He is, why is Esau blessed? If God is who He says He is, why do the Edomites survive for so many generations? And the Canaanites and the Amalekites. Why is God passing over if He is such a righteous man, righteous God? Why is He passing over these sins? How can He be just? He's not acting just. If God absolutely... I can make this statement. If God passed over sin for all time, if He swept it under the carpet, if He said it doesn't matter, He would be unjust and we would have no hope. If God simply said, you know, sin's a bad thing, but I'm a benevolent Santa Claus up here in heaven, I'm just going to let everybody go. He would be a mockery. He would be unjust. And we would be damned for eternity. He cannot pass over sin forever. But God didn't let that be true. How did He not let it be true? You see it there in the text. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Aha! Your God is unrighteous. Everybody's a sinner and He does nothing about it. Verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, whom God, that's the action we need to underline, whom God put forward as a propitiation. What did God do about this charge of Him being unrighteous? He put His Son forward. He heard the charge of God is unrighteous and He said, No, I am righteous. Behold my Son. He's perfect. He's my lamb. Watch what I do with Him. If you want to know how much I hate sin, look at the cross. If you want to know how much I hate sin, look at His suffering. If you want to know how much I love you, look at the cross. If you want to know how great my grace is, look at His resurrection. I'm telling you, God says, I am just. And the justifier. God is all in all. The justification of the ungodly. Passing over sin is saying we are justified. This is the term for justification in the Greek. We see it in Romans 4, 5 when it says, And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly. God justifies not righteous men, but ungodly men. And that's what I want us... To see, And it's not just that He forgave our past sin. He forgives our past sin, present sin, future sin. He forgave all sin. All sin of the elect. All of it. Before it was ever committed, before there was ever a day, God forgave it in His Son. Let's look at this. Four things. 
four things I want us to see about the objective justification that is present in this passage. Now, I'm not going to talk about the subjective end of justification, which deals with the action of faith, uh, 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 the, the calling out on God for salvation. I'm not going to deal with that today. This is why, because if you have the objective truth, that faith will spring forth from your heart immediately and instantaneously. I'm telling you, you could have walked in this building with no clue of who God was, your sin, Christ, none of it. And if you tune in and the Holy Spirit takes these words to your heart, you will need nobody to beg you. You will cry out and say, like Luther, the light came on. My journey had ended. I was a child of God, righteous by Christ. That can be your statement today if you came here lost. And if you're a Christian, you should take great joy in this bedrock foundation and rest in this fact that Christ is all in all. He is our righteousness from beginning to end. Let's look at these four things quickly. Forgiven, we are, when we are justified, forgiven for all of our sins. I said that. Past, present, and future. Look at Romans 4, 5 through 8. The text says, To one who does not work, but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Reckoned as righteousness. Counted as righteousness. It's not righteousness, but it's counted that way. It's accounted to us. So also David pronounces a blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from his works. I want you to underline some phrases. I'll tell you. Blessed are those whose, underline, iniquities are forgiven. And, underline, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. Underline verse 8. Three truths in these two little verses that should cause you great, exceeding joy. He does not count against us our iniquity. It's forgiven. He does not leave our sin open. He covers it. He counts us righteous. He counts us righteous. Well, how does He do that? Because He does not count our sin against us. It's not on our account. This is right at the heart of this subject of justification. Iniquities are forgiven. Sin is covered. The Lord does not reckon our sin against us. Paul does not limit forgiveness to the sin we've already committed before we believe. It's not that God brings us to zero. It's not that we're in the negative. We're in sin. And then God, through Christ, brings us to zero. So that we can earn our righteousness. We're negative 10 on the negative 10 to positive 10 scale before Christ. And when we are saved, when that objective justification is applied to us in real time, we immediately go from negative 10 to positive 10. All the righteousness of God. Immediately. It's not earned. Why? Because the the work of the law has been set aside. The work of the law has been set over here. And our righteousness is in Christ alone. You say, well, what about sanctification? He handles that also. I've told you before, I've 
been reading uh, to my daughter and my son as much as he'll listen. Uh, it's tough for a two-year-old to listen to Pilgrim's Progress. But this great allegory, the first work of fiction written in 1612 was Pilgrim's Progress by this little tinker who was a preacher. And it stood the test of time outside the Bible. No book has sold more copies than Pilgrim's Progress. You know what's so marvelous about that is Christian starts out in the land of destruction. An evangelist comes with the message the king desires you to come to his kingdom. And he says, how can I go? And the answer is not, live a better life in the, li- in the land of destruction and then one day you'll be good enough. The answer is, run, make haste to the wicked gate which stands It stands open. Run to it. You cannot enter any other way. You cannot climb over the wall. You cannot sneak through a crack. You must go through that gate, Christian. And he says, what if I get lost on the way? And he says, the king will bring you safely to his kingdom. He will take you by the way of the cross. He will plunge you in the righteousness of his son. He will clothe you in white garment. He will give you a robe that you present at the gate of the celestial city. And when you cross the dark river, He will be with you. And when His servants ask, why should we let you in? Your reply is to hand the roll to the servant, the angel, to take to the king. Don't defend yourself, Christian. Don't tell them all the good things you've done. Don't talk about your sanctification Talk about your justification in Christ alone. Hand them the roll and say, this is why I'm allowed in. Because He, Jesus Christ, is my righteousness. That's what it means in Pilgrim's Progress. That's what the whole journey of sanctification is not the focus of Pilgrim's Progress. The journey is the sidebar. It's a conclusion that will happen. The real focus of of, of the allegory, the story is go through the wicked gate, pass by the way of the cross, cross the dark river, hand them the righteousness of Christ, and you will be in the celestial city. You'll be accepted. You'll be a son. Our sins are forgiven. Christ has done it because He became our sin and our guilt. Romans three twenty four. look in the text, and are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Do you see that there? That marvelous truth. The redemption. Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. Isaiah wrote in 53.6, The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so justification, the forgiveness of sins, comes to us because Christ bore our sin. He was our curse. He was guilty in our place. And so we are released from the condemnation that is due our sin. That's what it means to be justified through the redemption in Christ Jesus as you see it in Romans 3.24. Justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He suffered one time for all sin of the elect. Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. 
In 9.12, he's, the, Bible, the writer of the Hebrews says, He entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's a one-time sacrifice for the payment of all the elect's sin for all time. It's finished. It's complete. So when we have the supper, when we come into Holy Communion, when we deal with the Lord today in this great picture of the Gospel, He is not sacrificed all over again. He's not paying a new penalty for the sins you committed since last month when we had this supper. That's not what's happening here. That transaction occurred. It is done. It is objective. It is a truth. Jesus paid for our sin. He bore our sin and He suffered one time for all of it. So the forgiveness of justification is the forgiveness of all sin. Past, present, future. And it happened when Christ died. It became a fact. Written down in eternity, completed at the cross. Finished. And done. Secondly, in this justification we see that we are reckoned Righteous with Christ's righteousness. This one is so foreign to us and our teaching that I think this will be important for you to gather. We are justified. We are called righteous with the righteousness that's given to us. It's imputed to us. It's placed on our account from Christ. It's alien. The old theological term is it's an alien righteousness comes from outside of us. It's not from internal righteousness. Look at verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There is no distinction. You mean from the beginning it's been about the righteousness of Christ? Absolutely. What makes a Jew, an Israelite, a child of Abraham? He has faith in the sacrifice of the Messiah. The one that was to come to bear their sin. When did God start preaching that message? In Matthew? No. He started preaching it in Genesis. He preaches the outskirts of it even to Adam when he sacrifices that animal and clothes him in that skin. He begins there. He tightens the scope with Abraham when he says, your offspring shall be a blessing to all the nations. All the nations. Not just the race of the Jews, but the real Jewish nation, which is the church. There's no quiet question about that. Many debate it. It's undebatable, in my opinion, from my study. When you study the great doctrinal truths found in Romans and you walk away with this clear crystal picture that from time past in eternity, God has had for Himself a bride. It's one bride. He has had for Himself one nation. It is the nation Peter speaks of in his letter. A holy nation. He has had for Himself one priesthood from all time. It is the priesthood of the believers. That has been the work of God in redemption through the justification that is found in Christ. That we gain an alien righteousness. That we are grafted in to the tree by the righteousness of Jesus. 
Look at, if you think about this, it becomes more clear as we look at what he really has done in this transaction. Many have called it the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ knew no sin. Perfect in every way. He lived for the glory of God at all moments in his life. He was perfect. He was righteous. We have sinned from our first breath, from the conception in our mother's womb. We have rebelled, sinned, denied God in every part of our being. We are unrighteous. But God, who chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, ordained that the sin, guilt, punishment, separation from God, our unrighteousness, He determined that that would go on His perfect Son. Now, Jesus did not become a sinner. This is key. Jesus did not experience sin on the cross. Okay? I often hear people talk like that. Like, what would it have been like to be perfect and then all of a sudden be a sinner? Well, Jesus can't answer that question for you. He was not a sinner before the cross, on the cross, or after the cross. He was never a sinner. He was perfect. Well, then what happened? The elect sin was clothed around him. And he was cut off from the fellowship, the communion from the Father because of our sin. It didn't become his sin. It was still our sin. Now you say, why is that so important? Because in that same moment when God clothed him in our sin, God in eternity had clothed us in his righteousness. You say, I don't believe your God is so gracious. You don't know the cross. You say, I'm not sure God really loves me. I'm having a hard life down here struggling. You don't know the cross. I'm not sure there is such a thing as an eternity. And I'm not sure there is such a thing as heaven and hell. You don't know the cross. Because in the cross we see hell in all its fury. And in the cross we see heaven in all its beauty. In that single action, God took my sin, your sin, the sin of all the elect from all time, and He wrapped it around His Son as a garment to wear. He made Him who knew no sin to bear our sin. Why? So that He could then take His clothes of righteousness, His garment of righteousness, and clothe the sons to clothe the bride so that it is spotless and beautiful and pure. Ungodly men covered in perfection. That's the picture of the gospel. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, While we were yet weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why one will hardly die for a righteous man? 
Though perhaps for a good man one will even dare die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is proving in the death of His Son that He is righteous and that He loves us. The third thing we see is that He loved us. He forgave us. We know that. We see, secondly, that He has given us the righteousness of Christ. It's alien to us in justification. And we also see that He loves us. The cross is a picture of God's wrath and His love. And it's free. The gift that is presented there is free. In Romans 3.24, Paul says, We are justified by His grace as a gift. You can't earn His love. Some of you came here today earning, trying to earn love, trying to work your way to God, trying to be acceptable. You're tired. You're worn out. You can't do it. God says, it's unnecessary. My son has earned it. My son has earned love for you. My son has paid the price for you. My son stands forevermore making intercession for you. God put him forward. He displayed him there at the cross. And finally, we see he secured us forever with that justification. We are secure. Paul proclaims in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you are justified, you will be glorified. It's a blessing. It's a gift that cannot be taken away. It is forever. You will reach glory in the age to come and live forever with God in joy and holiness. How can we be sure of this? It's sure because it's not based on our work and it's not based on our decision. It's based on God's decision. It's based on God's work in His Son, Jesus Christ. And once it is applied to the account of the believer, it is secure. God, to take salvation away from a believer, would have to deny His Son, and He will not. Anyone who teaches that salvation can be lost, what they are saying is God counts you righteous and says Christ is enough and your sin is paid and you are now my child. But if you sin, I will say my son's not enough. I will say the sacrifice was not good. I will say the work is not finished and I'll draw it back. And the answer of the writer of Hebrews is, if that's the case, can he be crucified anew? And the answer is no, he cannot. It's once and for all. It's finished. When it is applied to you, you are secure. And it's not based on your subjective feeling. It's not based on, I've been a good boy or a good girl. I've read my Bible. I've prayed enough. I've acted good. I helped the little old lady across the street. I went to church 25 times in a row. I've done all these good things. God loves me. You want to know God loves you? That's what I want to know. 
when doubt comes to your mind, when you fear Him, that great judge, run. Run. Run to the foot of the cross and hold on to Jesus Christ and say the gospel to yourself. I am not saved because of me. I am not saved because I am good. I am not acceptable because I have earned it. I am ungodly. And then run to Romans 5 where he says, in the right time, God showed His love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And run to 1 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, My sin was taken and placed on Him. His righteousness was placed on me. And run to Romans 8 verse 30 and say, If I have been predestined, I have been justified. And if I have been justified, I will be glorified. And run further into that passage where Paul says, Who then can bring a charge against God's elect? No one can. And accuse yourself and say, How dare I in pride stand before a holy God and say, Your system doesn't work for me. That's what we have to do. Take doubt by the throat with the power of the Holy Spirit and say, I will not call into question the integrity, the justice, the righteousness, the love of my Almighty God. I will not do it. I will not do it. It is sinful. And say, neither height nor depth, power or principality, nothing created. And you might have to say to yourself, self, that means you. You cannot separate yourself from this great love that He displayed on His great cross. I say, you want to fight the battle? You want to get in the war against the flesh and against doubt and against the works mentality? Run to the cross. It's the only shelter that you will find. He is a rock. He who run to Him find their covering. He is a stronghold. Those who run in Him find refuge. He is all in all. If you will be relieved from your conscience and if you will be relieved from your sin, sinner, it will be in Him. It won't be by your works. And so when we come take this supper, you say it's just juice and it's just bread. And I say, you're right. There's nothing magical here. But when you put that bread in your mouth, common Bland, tasteless as it may be. Because of this truth, it is like the manna which came down from heaven. It is sweeter than a honeycomb. It is more filling than all the food in the world. And when you turn up this small glass and you taste that juice, bitter, sweet, you think, oh, I am a failure. I am ungodly. But thanks be to God. He has covered my sin, my ungodliness, with the righteous blood of His great Son, my Savior, 
Jesus Christ. You say, why do we take communion every month? Doesn't it get old? Isn't it repetitious? Only if you do not understand the power and the truth of the gospel. It gets old then. But when you know this gospel and when you experience it new every morning, you say, why not every week? Why not every service? Why not every day we celebrate this great truth? I beg you, if you're lost, run to the cross. I beg you, if you're saved, run to the cross. Run to the only one who can save you. Run to Jesus. The gate is open. Remember the words of evangelist. There's only one way. Through the wicked gate. We just passed the point in the story, Hannah Grace and I did, where ignorance came and hopeful and Christian said, where are your robes? And where is your role? Don't be ignorant. Ignorant said, I have no need of them. Don't you see? I have climbed over the wall. I have walked the path. But you didn't pass by the cross? Oh no, I have no need of it. I'm going to get to the city and they will let me in. He arrived across that river and he was denied entrance. Why? Because he wasn't good enough? No. Because he had no covering. He had no righteousness. He had no forgiveness. He had no love of God. Don't be ignorant. Don't climb over the wall. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, You are a great God with a great salvation. You have called us into relationship with You by Your precious Son, Jesus Christ. So now, in this supper, as we sing of Your love and as we look at Your amazing grace, and then we come to take this supper, this communion dinner, Lord, let us, as we put the bread to our lips, think, this is the manna which came down from heaven. He who eats of this will not die like the fathers in the wilderness, but will have everlasting life. And when we tip that glass to drink that bittersweet grape juice, may we always think, oh, the bitterness of my sin, but the sweet covering of my Savior is enough. Oh, Jesus, commune with us in this time. Call us to renewed faith. Call us to renewed uh, vision of who you are. Call us to a renewed passion for your gospel. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.